please turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, and our text will be verses 1 to 10. <clears throat> the past couple of weeks being in Titus, uh, there's a number of things that uh, Titus has uh, been given instructions on by the Apostle Paul concerning how to order the church, why to do so because of the, the pagan society that uh, Titus finds himself in, in Crete. There is a necessity there to raise up uh, those within the church to be pastors who are uh, mature, who exemplify the particular characteristics that he had put forth. These are those that will help Titus in order to shepherd the flock faithfully, to guard from the wolves, all of that. There is, there is a culture in Crete that is pagan, uh, and as he says, uh, as far as the description of them, in verse 12 of chapter 1, the apostle tells Titus, one of them a prophet said of their own, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now again, he's not making any kind of ethnic slur kind of thing. He's actually quoting one of the prophets, or one of the so-called prophets of Crete in recognition of the kind of people that he lived among. So Paul is saying that those that are in the church trying to lead the church astray are exhibiting those very characteristics, and so you need to be on guard with that. Now you have to have those in place in order to help shepherd the flock who have sound doctrine, who are seasoned in the word of God. But as we're going to see today, when you're looking at everything that Titus is being told by Paul, there's, there's that ordering of the entire structure of the church. That these are the marks of a true church, a true sound church. Everything that Paul has been giving to Titus and then in our passage today. This is how a true church is ordered. This is the characteristics that we must exemplify if we are going to indeed glorify our Lord. It has to be not only sound doctrine, but it has to be sound doctrine that is put into practice. It's not enough just to have a knowledge of God's word and a knowledge of what is right. But sound doctrine without any application is fruitless, and it produces no fruit among the congregation. And that's why it, it needs to also be emphasized that sound doctrine not only glorifies our Lord and what we believe about him, but we also need to understand that what we believe about him needs to be exemplified in our life, that our lives are glorifying the Lord and verifying the truth of our profession in him. Now, the things that we're going over, he really covers the categories of those that you find in the church. Older men, younger, younger men, older women, younger women. Uh, he, he's even going to go over uh, those uh, slaves and masters. And don't get nervous on that because we're going to talk about that a little bit as well. That what we see within the scripture as far as slaves and masters is not what happened in the Americas. And so we don't need to get confused with those two. But everything that we're reading here, as the instructions are given to the older men and the older women, 
The instructions are given to the slaves. It is all for the purpose of, of, of demonstrating that the lordship of Christ extends to every part of our life. Every part of our life is affected by the gospel, and every part of our life needs to be ordered accordingly that Christ will be honored and glorified by our conduct. And there's a way in which it's not just resting upon the responsibility of the elders of a church in order to try to further godliness among the congregation, but it is your responsibility as well in order to cultivate, the, the, uh, cultivate among the congregation godliness and holiness and righteousness of truth. And so we are looking at that very thing today, the kind of characteristics that we must uh, demonstrate in order that we can influence the younger and allow the younger to come up understanding how they need to live before our Lord. So if you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. And we will read Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. This is the holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. And let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. God's word says, But as for you, speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine. Older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, and perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this portion of your word. And thank you, Father, that as we look upon these words and we see perhaps even our own struggles with these characteristics. I pray, Father, that you would encourage our hearts to recognize that these things are only done in the power of the Spirit of God, that he enables us to carry these out. He changes us and molds us to do what is pleasing in your sight. And help us, Father, to, to see our need to glorify you in, in practically in our lives, and that we would be a church that is honoring to our Lord. Father, bless the preaching of your word and may it accomplish all you desire in us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen. Please be seated. <clears throat> there are a lot of areas here that Titus is given instructions on by the Apostle Paul. And it is indeed a heavy task. It is a heavy responsibility to, to be an example for others. I don't think any one of us would ever say like the Apostle Paul does in 1 Corinthians 11, imitate me because I'm imitating Christ. I'm not quite sure any one of us would take that kind of a responsibility upon ourselves. But that is what we are to strive for. We are to strive to be examples 
of who Christ is and his character and in his love, all of that in order to, to help to make the truth of our professions even more valid. It's one thing to say that you love the Lord. It's another to show it in the demonstration of how you live and to influence the younger generations. So we will come back to verse 1 here in just a moment. But I would like to begin in verse 2. Because verse 2, again, he is showing the marks of what a godly church should look like. And the first thing that he really goes over, because he's going to come back to Titus in a moment, is the marks of godly men. He says that the older men are to have these kind of characteristics. Now, some of these you find within the qualifications of, of elder, of pastor. But the older men are to exemplify these as well. They're to have influence over the younger for the better. To lead them in righteousness and holiness of the truth. To be examples of the kind of men that Christ calls us to be in contrast to the culture. And what you find here is exactly that. That the characteristics that we find here is in contrast to what the culture will tell you. And the culture of Titus's day was pagan, godless, and it's no different than today. The culture out there while they claim to be non-religious or whatever, is pagan. And they, they promote the same kinds of immorality as what the pagans did in the scripture. And there is no difference. So while you need to give your attention here, you need to understand that that's the case out there. The world offers the same things for every generation. That's all it ever, it's all it can offer. And ultimately, it leaves those who indulge in it even more empty and unfulfilled. And so it is necessary then that the older men, in light of the culture that we live in, strive to help the younger men to know how to live and live a life that is joyful and fulfilled. When you're looking at these things, it's, you know, people think, well, Christians are just so stoic, rigid. You know, they, they don't ever have any fun. Well, it's, that's not the case because God is not a cosmic killjoy. There is a life that is in him that is joyful and fulfilling and pleasurable and satisfying. Much more than what you find out there. So here's what he says. These older men, and they, they, he is referring to those who are advanced in age, but lest we want to exempt uh, ourselves from what he says here. The life expectancy of those within the Roman Empire at this time was really about 25 to 30 years old. So the commentators are estimating that the, that the older men that are in view here uh, are those who are perhaps 35, 40 years and up. These are those perhaps that are in view, the older men. And here's the kind of characteristics that they are to exemplify that we are familiar with because we've been over some of them. But the first, he says, is the older men are to be temperate. To be temperate is to be sober-minded. Now, some would say that it's to be moderate in the use of alcohol, and the consumption of alcohol is what is in view to be sober-minded. Uh, some would say it's to, to mean to be free from every form of mental and spiritual drunkenness. To be free from excess, passion, rashness, confusion. 
But ultimately, when you sum it all up, it just means to be restrained in your conduct and to exercise sound judgment in every area of your life to be clear-headed. Elder men are to be sober-minded in this respect, to be restrained in your conduct because of what he's getting ready to say as well as you work your way through here. Now, again, as you're looking at these and we see our struggles with some of this, this is why we have to rely on the Spirit of God to help us to do these things. Because it's not just that God says, you must do, you must do. It has to be that we look to the Lord and say, I can't. I need you to help me. And that's where the Spirit of God comes in to intercede, to change us, to give us the desires, to help us to overcome our struggles in life that we may carry out these things. They're to be dignified, worthy of respect, to be honorable. Uh, John Calvin uses the word gravity in his translation. It means to be serious about their life in Christ. One writer does say this, serious does not mean gloomy, but having well-regulated morals. He's to be worthy of respect. Calvin goes on to say, nothing is more shameful then for an old man to indulge in youthful wantonness and by, his, and by his countenance to strengthen the impudence of the young. In the, life of the, in, life, in the life of old men, therefore let there be displayed a becoming gravity which shall constrain the, the young to modesty. So he's saying it's shameful for old men to indulge in the very unrestraint of the young men and by them doing so just furthers the arrogance of the younger men. In the life of the old man, let there be displayed a becoming gravity, a becoming seriousness is the idea, a seriousness about their life in Christ, about the fear of the Lord, which then will help to constrain the young in modesty. They are to be dignified in this respect, worthy of honor, worthy of respect, having well-regulated morals. Because that's something that we need to understand of what they say out there. And this is the same for the ladies. The ladies, you've probably heard it too. I know everybody's heard it probably on a TV show or a movie. People talk about sowing your wild oats while you're young and then later on in life settling down. Because you have to get this all out in order to, to finally get to where you want to settle down. And what kind of life does that lead? It leads to some even serious error in your understanding of, of God's grace it leads to outright rebellion. It leaves you empty. It does not fulfill you. It does not satisfy you. And this is the great danger that is out there in the world that tells the young people, sow your wild oats now. Don't settle down now. There's a life to live and you're missing it. You're missing it if you want to commit yourself to Christ. You're missing out. And that's where the older, dignified men who are worthy of respect can have great influence on the younger to say, you're not missing anything. There's nothing there. There's nothing out there. And if you, if you really want to know what that kind of a life leads to, just read the book of Ecclesiastes. We've been going through it. You have Solomon who had everything at his disposal, all the women that he wanted, all the drink that he wanted, all the riches that he wanted. And what does he sum everything up to? This is the sum of life to fear the Lord and keep his commandments because all these things are vanity. It's all futility. It's unfulfilling. So they are to be 
temperate, dignified, sensible. And this word is very important because it's repeated for all the groups. To be sensible is to be self-controlled. And a lot of the wording that is used here is in reference to that very thing, to be self-controlled. And this is, <clears throat> this is used uh, for the qualifications of a pastor that Paul uses, to be sensible, self-controlled in this way. Uh, Clement of Rome used it to, to mean to be prudent. And Justin Martyr, the second century apologist, he uses the word to denote sound reason. And the meaning is that the older men should be men of mature judgment and proper restraint. If you can't control yourself and you indulge in everything that comes about, you're not going to help any of the younger to live for the Lord in the way that they should. Now, we, we may say, well, well, that's not my problem. You know, that's, that's their problem. And again, when you look at the Christian faith, there is no such thing as you being an island unto yourself. That is never within the scripture. You're not looking out for number one. You're looking out for others as well. You're looking out for their interests. You're trying to, to give an influence that you can protect them from, from sin and wickedness. So yes, it is your responsibility as well to be examples within the church. Regardless of who you are. He says... that they are to be sound in faith. Now, if you look at this, it says sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. And you can look at that to say sound in faith, sound in love, sound in perseverance is the idea. These three, as John Calvin says, are the sum of Christian perfection. He says, by faith we worship God. Love extends to God and His commandments. Patience, he says, Seasons, faith, and love. And without it, faith would not long endure. You need patience. You have to have patience. We talked about that already, about the need for us to, to have patience and to pray for patience and help us, ask the Lord to help us to be patient. Because without it, we would be careless in our duties to love one another if we didn't have patience to support us. To uphold us. You have to have patience with others. You can't be quick-tempered. You can't be quick-tongued. The very thing that, that you have the privilege of doing, especially when younger men come to you, is not to say something like, well, that's, that's just a stupid question. Why would you ever ask me that? But to listen intently to what questions that they have or what concerns that they have or even what oppositions that they have and listen and then give them a well-reasoned response. This is why we don't believe what the culture does because God is the foundation of all morality and ethics. And we have a solid foundation. They don't. They have their feet planted in firm in midair when it comes to morality. And this is why we understand what is right and what is wrong because God has given us his law and by his law we see his holy nature and we have a solid foundation to understand right and wrong, good and evil. They don't. This is why we believe this is wrong. Or how can you live that way? Because God's word tells me that this is the way that honors Christ. And so I deny myself, I deny my own desires, and I live for him. But living for him is much more fulfilling than what I wanted before. So there's a well-reasoned answer that you give to the, to the younger ones who come with questions. 
and oppositions. Not to be quick-tongued or arrogant or mean, but to listen and to be patient. You must be patient. If you, if you think about the patience of God, wow. It's amazing that, that he, he allows us to live another day after the previous day. Because every day we find ourselves falling short in the way that we speak, in the way that we think, in the way that we act. We fall short all the time. And that's why we praise our Lord that his mercies are new every morning and great is his faithfulness. Because when we are unfaithful, he is faithful and he still bestows grace upon us because he is by his very nature long-suffering and patient. And because we are born of the Spirit now, the Spirit is, is put, has grown and cultivated those types of, of characteristics in us that we can begin to be like our Lord, which is being patient. And why does he say this? Well, it goes back to the very thing that we're saying in verse 6. The older men are to exemplify these kind of characteristics in their own life, to be disciplined in their own life, to have a control over themselves, because they're the ones who urge the young men to be sensible as well, and sensible to be self-controlled, to be mature in judgment and proper in their restraint. Because the older men are teaching the younger. That's why. And then he moves on to the older women. Now, the importance of godly women, really and truly, and I know we hear this so often, but really and truly cannot be overstated. They are vital to the church. John MacArthur says, Godly older women are a rich spiritual resource in the church and deserve special esteem and consideration. And just as I was referring to the men a moment ago, the older men and defining who they are, you're talking about women who are 35, 40 years and up. They are a rich resource in the church and deserve special esteem and consideration, as MacArthur says. There are numerous women in Scripture who exemplify what Paul is trying to bring out here about the, the, the character and the nature of women and their devotion to Christ. One of them is <clears throat> one of them is Anna. When you read of Anna in Luke chapter two, you see that kind of a commitment unto the Lord. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 36 through 38. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers at that very moment she came up, this is at the dedication of Christ, at that very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. This was Anna's commitment. After her husband had died after seven years, she committed herself 
solely to the Lord, consecrated her life to the Lord and waited for the coming of the Messiah. And then after he is dedicated at the temple, she's praising the Lord and telling others about him. In reference to Anna, one writer says, Mature Christian women are likewise to be centered on Christ and devoted to God's praise, keeping a faithful and prayerful presence in the house of God. And so they are to exemplify very similar characteristics as what he just went over with the men. We know that because he says older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior. Just as the things he just said about the men, this is to be uh, what is demonstrated in the lives of the, of the older women, to be reverent in their behavior. It means to be consecrated unto the Lord. It's, it's that which is suitable for what is sacred. It's to rise above the cultural values and to live for the honor of Christ. The older women are likewise to be reverent in their behavior. And there are really two particular vices that he is going over here. The first is not to be malicious gossips. To verbally assassinate the character of another is what is in view. One writer says, malevolent attempts to injure others with words is not in keeping with holiness. Now, it's easy to get angry at someone, another person, and then to begin to speak very ill of them out of anger. This isn't just something that uh, is you know, a vice for the ladies. It's just as easy for the guys as well to do the same. To get angry and to vent, and when you vent, you end up saying much more than what you should have, perhaps, and end up starting even, even greater fires with your tongue. But not malicious gossips. Here's what we have to remember, is that, again, whether we're dealing with believers or unbelievers, all people are created in the image of God regardless of who they are. And so they should be treated with dignity and value. And when the time comes that they say mean things to you or they treat you in a way that is unbecoming or they, they anger you so much that you, you think you're going to spit nails or whatever, then you have to go back to what you know to be true and you need to pray unto the Lord to help you to control yourself because that is what is most honoring to the Lord rather than allowing your mouth to cause you to sin. It feels good. In the moment, say all kinds of horrible things about somebody because you're angry, especially if they're right there and you get to say, that, say it to them. But I think one, one reason why perhaps he is saying this to the ladies is because the ladies probably understand more so than the men of the great danger of what you say being able to penetrate into the heart of someone more so than if you physically hurt them. That's why perhaps James says that the tongue is set on fire by hell. Because it's the tongue that can cut the worst. Not any physicality. It's what you can say to someone. And so to be malicious gossips is not to be becoming of um, a reverent uh, woman within the church. And the second thing he says is enslaved to much wine. Uh, perhaps this was a temptation not only for the men because he just got done talking about this very thing to the men, but also for the women. 
Maybe if their vocation was at home, then they're near the alcohol all the time. And they can indulge as they, they please. Maybe that was a temptation. But regardless, he says that they are not to be enslaved to much wine. There must be reverent behavior in every aspect of your life. So you must be careful when you consume alcohol. Be moderate. Don't drink for drunkenness. It's the same thing for the men. But what does he say then? These are the two vices you must guard against. But what then do you do? You teach what is good. Ladies, you teach what is good to the younger ladies. That they can know what is good in the sight of God. That they will not be confused by what anything else in the culture will try to tell them about how to live and live fulfilling, uh, fulfilling life and any of that. You're teaching them what is good. And what is good is in accordance with the scripture itself of how they may honor the Lord. And look what he says. Teaching what is good so that they may be encouraged, that, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands and to love their children. That word encourage goes back to the same root word of being sensible. To be self-controlled. Perhaps uh, the indulging in the alcohol was because maybe they began to resent their husband and resent their children. Maybe they think they're missing out on something in life by settling down too early. Maybe they become bitter, and that's why they've started drinking in excess. You know, have you ever, I know you have. I don't even know why I'm asking. You've heard that song by Reba McIntyre, Is There Life Out There, right? Talks about a young lady who uh, was around 20 when she got married, and she thought she had lived a little bit, and then she finds out after she has been a couple of years, maybe or however long, uh, being married and having her kids, that she's longing for something more. She's longing for something out there. And that's the great temptation. And when you long for something out there, rather than looking at your family and the gift of your, that, that God has given you with your family, then you can become embittered. And perhaps that's why they can fall to the other vices of being malicious gossips, and being enslaved to much wine because they are not enjoying the very gifts that God has given. Yes, children can be very trying at times. But just think of what kind of an honor that you have. You have the honor of bringing up more image bearers of God and teaching them how to live, guiding them through their mistakes helping them to overcome whatever struggles that they have in their life and always be there to help point them in the right direction. This is the way that is most pleasing. This is the way you need to go. A lot of times kids look at their parents. Amanda and I were talking about this because of a video that we had watched, but a lot of times kids look at their parents as just being stupid until they get around 25 or 26. Then it's like, oh, maybe they had something there. And so you have to, again, in, in all those instances as well, you have to show patience. You have to show patience even when it's hard. 
And that's where you have to pray and ask the Lord to help you. But it doesn't nullify the gift that God has given to you of your family. Because they are a gift. Whether you have kids or you don't, whether you're married or you're not, you have a family that is there and they are a gift to you. Regardless of what that family a dynamic is, if you still have siblings, if you still have your mom and dad, there is always a blessing that God has given. So the older women teach the younger, love your husbands and love your children. And the word here is that root word phileo, which is to have affection for your husband and your children. See them as gifts that God has given to you to help your life be even more uh, fulfilled, more satisfying. Don't become embittered at them. He says, for the, for the older women, too, to be sensible. Again, it goes back to that very same word, to be self-controlled. The older women need to be self-controlled. They need to be pure. They need to have moral uprightness. Uh, <clears throat> and, and recognize this, too, that whether you're a physical mom or you're not. Uh, Suzanne Hunt uh, talks about this kind of mentoring uh, as being that spiritual mothering. So this, this is how she defines it. She says that when a woman possessing faith and spirited maturity enters into the nurturing relationship with another woman to encourage and equip her to live for God's glory, that is spiritual mothering. So whether you have children or you don't, you can, you can have that kind of a nurturing relationship with another when you're mentoring the younger ones, teaching them how to live life that is honoring because living in a way that they love their husbands and their children they're expressing a life that is devoted to Christ because they recognize the blessing that has been given so they may encourage the young women to love their husbands to love their children to be sensible pure workers at home This does not mean that Paul is defining that women need to be at home. It's not what he's saying. In the culture of that day, that's exactly where a lot of the women's vocation was, but not all the time. In fact, if you read um, Proverbs chapter 31, what is often read on Mother's Day and other, other days like that. In Proverbs chapter 31, you read beginning of verse 16. It says, She considers a field and buys it. From her earnings she plants a vineyard. She girds herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She senses that her gain is good. Her lamp does not go out at night. This is a lady in who's in the home, she has a family, and yet she has a vocation. She's out, she's buying a field, she's planting, she's, she's harvesting, she's making money. And that's the, 
That's the one chapter that is often read in order to honor the women. One writer says this. He says, to modern readers about this statement being workers at home, or some of your translations may say busy at home, to modern readers, this statement may conjure visions of a young woman chained to the kitchen sink with six crying children at her feet. Paul has been accused by some interpreters of male chauvinistic tendencies. The context, however, does not support such notions. In the first century cultures, the home was the domain of the woman. This instruction by Paul would have, would have not sounded foreign or oppressive to anyone in the Greco-Roman culture. He was not defining or limiting a woman's place. He was addressing women where they were. This is not a picture of enslavement, but of useful enterprise. Whether a woman works outside the home or not, she is to bring special grace and beauty to her home. More than any other member of the family, the woman tends to set the tone for the household. Paul is commending women who understand the importance and high priority which God has designed into the roles of mother, wife, and homemaker. Society rests not only on politics and commerce, but more critically, upon the home where each member of society learns respect for authority, values, relational skills, and duty to neighbor and nation. So whether the woman is at home or she has a vocation, she brings, she sets the tone for the home. She brings the beauty into the home. And Paul is commending them for that. Again, this isn't, this isn't oppressive talk, nothing like that. Quite, uh, quite literally, it's far from it. This is commending, commending the ladies who bring that kind of an influence into the home. You know, often what you usually hear uh, about families, especially when children grow up, they, they often say, well, dad was you know, pretty rough at times or very hard at times, but mom... Mom was a very loving one. She was always the kind one. She set the tone in the home. And how important that that is, especially when you're raising image bearers of God. Giving that kind of nurturing and that kind of love, that kind of an influence in the home. How important that that is. So whether you have a vocation or you do not, you still bring that kind of an influence into your home. And if you do have a vocation, the very thing that you have to guard against as well as the men is not to allow your vocation to cause you to um, ignore your spouse or your children, but to still be able to bring that kind of a nurturing heart into the home because he says workers at home, and then he says the very next thing is being kind. It means to be generous, warm-hearted in nature in the home. And ladies, you can bring that much more than what the men can. Because we're built differently. And that's why you, when you have that complementary relationship, you can have a good balance within the home. Because the husband and the wife are to complement each other. So they are to be workers at home, being kind, being subject to their own husbands. Again, what are we talking about? We're not talking about being slaves. We're not talking about the husband being able to dominate the wife. Whatever I say goes, any of that nonsense, because if you, if you come across with that sort of talk, 
you're, you're probably not going to have much of a good day. Your day's not going to be good if you say some very foolish things like that to your wife. But notice something. He's speaking to women here. He's not saying to the men, men, you need to coerce your wife into being subject to you. He's saying, ladies, teach the younger women to be subject to their own husbands. They're to be subject to only one, which is their husband, not any other. And then what does that mean? What does it mean to be subject or to be submissive to your husband? Again, it does not mean that I have nothing in the home and everything belongs to him, and then I must ask if I can do this or ask if I can do that. No, not at all. It's more, it's more demonstrating that complementary relationship as Christ with the church. As the church submits itself to Christ, and as Christ willingly submits himself to the Father, so too it's the same dynamic that the women voluntarily, willingly submit to the headship of their husband. The husband has great responsibility on him. Because when you look at Ephesians chapter 5 and you read how husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and, and how they are to help further their wives along in their sanctification and to guard them and protect them and to provide for them, all of that, men, you are to love your wives in that kind of a way. And when you can lead in godliness because you recognize that the home is, is your congregation, it's, it's your flock, you're, you're held responsible for what you allow to go on in your home. And as the husband is trying to lead in godliness and in righteousness of the truth, so the wife comes alongside and everything then that, that is done within the home or in the raising of the children by her is done in accordance with that goal of that mutual goal, which is to raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So there is a willing submission on the part of the wife to the husband's headship within the home as the husband leads and he is he is to lead in godliness. And if you have a situation where your wife is not, is not submitting to your headship, well, one of two things is happening. Either one, perhaps it is just rebellion, or two, maybe you're not leading well. Maybe you're not doing as you should when it comes to leading your family accordingly, uh, that God would be honored in your home. So there's a willing submission there. And it is all of these things and so that the word of God would not be dishonored. That's, that's leading up to this whole thing because God is a God of order. In fact, when you read in 1 Corinthians, you have the head of every woman is man. The head of every man is Christ. The head of Christ is God. And so even within the triune nature of God, you have a willing submission of Christ to the Father, the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son. It doesn't mean anything about inferiority or less valuable, any of that. It is coming together in the dynamic that God has, has ordained in order to have a good balance within the home. Wives, you bring a lot to your, your home. You bring a lot of wisdom to your home. And for us husbands, we do well uh, to listen to your wisdom and your, your instructions as well. 
because we complement one another. So, older women, you guide the younger. You have influence over them. But as he addresses the marks of a godly man and the marks of a godly woman, he really turns his attention back to Titus then. And he says in verse 7, In all things, you show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. That's really expressing a little bit more what he said in verse 1, but you speak the things which are fitting for sound doctrine, which is healthy doctrine, which is doctrine without error. If you're, if you're teaching sound doctrine, that which is without error, then the application of that and the practical parts of that are going to be in line with what God intended by saying what he did in the scripture. If you have a, a skewed view of what it is, to, to, or a skewed view rather of the very nature of God or of Christ, or if any of that, it's going to affect then how you live. So they must, they must coincide. You must have sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, that which is good. And then the practical outworking of that in accordance with what we know to be right, according to the scripture. So he's telling Titus, these are the things that you need to emphasize. But you, as the pastor, as the shepherd, you are to exemplify this. You're not only to teach it, but you're to live it as well. Again, that saying that we hear all the time, words speak louder, or excuse me, actions speak louder than words, right? Well, this is what he's telling to Titus. Show yourself to be an example of good deeds. With purity in doctrine. Again, soundness in doctrine. Teach what is right. Handle the word of God correctly. Show yourself to be one who has studied and knows what the word of God says and can, can communicate it in a way that is understandable and is true to the scripture. Be sound in your speech, which is beyond reproach. Speech, what's in view here is speech that cannot be, or that cannot have an occasion to be condemned by those who are outside. A lot of things we say are always going to be criticized anyway, especially when you're upholding what the word of God says in light of what the culture says. That's going to happen anyway. But what is in view here is the kind of speech, maybe wicked talk, uh, unbecoming of a believer, speech that cannot have an occasion to be condemned by those outside. And notice something. He says that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. The way that Timothy lives and speaks and acts also reflects upon Paul. Your actions, how you speak and how you act outside of the church and people knowing that you come here reflects on the, on the church. Again, you, you can't get away from that. When you walk out of here, you represent this local church. You represent Christ ultimately beyond anything else. And what you say or how you act will bring reproach upon Christ, bring reproach upon this local body. Because we are accountable to each other. 
soul. Then in verse 9 and 10, again, he's covering every, everything here. How to be um, honoring to Christ in every, every aspect, every social uh, structure. And so he then begins to talk about bond slaves. I urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters and everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Now, when it comes to this issue here, it's really showing us the marks of a godly worker. One writer says that Paul gives instructions according to the societal structures of the day. Slaves were foundational to Roman economic stability. They comprised the lowest rung of the social ladder. Some were shipsmen, some, some were ship oarsmen, craftsmen, teachers, and had a variety of duties. Now, something to point out here is that when you're looking at what the scriptures say about this particular subject of slaves and masters, it's just the same as it is today. When you become a believer and you begin to study and you see the things that God has said elsewhere, this is what helps to order our life now. So we look to the scripture. We look to the scripture not just in the New Testament for how we should live. We go to the Old Testament and we see what things were pleasing in the sight of God and we begin to implement them in our life. So when you go back to the Old Testament and you're reading about the slaves and masters, this was really a situation of being an indentured servant. In the sense that if you uh, owed people money, and you owed debt that you couldn't pay, you could become their slave to pay off your debt. And according to the law, uh, you would serve for seven years, and in the seventh year, you would go free. If you decided that you, that you loved your, your family, that you were serving the master, uh, then he would pierce your ear as a symbol of that, and you would remain. Because if you're living in, in those kind of conditions where you could not provide for your own family, and you have someone that you can be a servant to that will provide for your family, then that gave you some stability within the old world in order to care for your family. So becoming believers then, that kind of instruction within the Old Testament then would have bearing on the believers in Paul's day as well. This is how we are to do. This is what is pleasing to God. We implement his law according to his instructions and this this here, this is our standard. This is how we are to treat one another and do to one another. Now, what kind of application can we give to that? We don't really have slaves and masters in our day. We don't have a situation in which we can become an indentured servant to another to pay off our debt. But we do, we do have jobs. We do serve others in, in our labor. And we recognize that in doing so, that we are serving their interest to keep their business going, and by doing so, we get to make a living and to care for our family. And so in light of that kind of a uh, situation in which we are able and privileged to be able to work and to make money, then pilfering or being argumentative uh, is unbecoming. 
We don't just take something because we feel like we're owed it. I ought to be making much more money than what I am, and so I'm just going to grab this thing right here, or I'm going to take this little bit over here in order to make up for not being paid what, what I think I deserve. Or being argumentative. The boss comes and he says, hey, this is how I want it done. I don't want to do it that way. I think it's better to do it this way. Then you have to remind yourself who it is you're working for. This isn't your business. It's theirs. So how do they want it done? And this is what we do. Sometimes we think maybe it would work better maybe another way. And maybe you can have that conversation at a later time with them to say, hey, can I try this out? And maybe it help advance things a little bit quicker, a little bit better. By all means, have those conversations. But at, ultimately, at the end of the day, you have to recognize they're the ones who are in authority. They have hired you for a particular task, and that is what you are to perform. That can be aggravating at times, but whether you eat, whether you drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. You recognize that in every dynamic of what we're talking about, in the way that we live, we are living in such a way that Christ is honored. We have to put up with things perhaps that we don't like at times, but we want to make sure that Christ is honored. And so Christ needs to be honored in our family, needs to be honored within the workplace. And that's really what's coming into play there. The Christians are to, <clears throat> to be balanced, to behave decently, orderly, uh, in a manner that honors Christ and furthers the gospel. Now, looking at all of that, we say, that's really difficult. I don't know if I can do that. Uh, that's really hard. You don't know what I have to deal with and put up with, and granted, I don't. But what I do know is that our sovereign God has placed you where he has. And since he has placed you where he has and he has given you these instructions, he says, this is what is pleasing to me regardless if you're serving someone who is difficult. You honor me above all. That's what Christ is saying. And not only is he saying, you need to honor me in everything that you do, but he says, I'm providing you with everything you need to do it. This isn't in your own strength. This is in the strength of the Spirit of God, who he has granted to us to help keep ourselves in check, to help keep our mouths quiet, and to perform our work as we should, or to be dignified and deny our own uh, desires or whatever, and to do what is what is glorifying to Christ. And the very thing that uh, much of this is, is being filtered through is it's, it's demonstrating the necessity of the word of God to even carry out all these things because the spirit works in conjunction with the word of God. And as we are studying the word of God and we're seeing what it is that we need to be doing, then the spirit working in conjunction with the, with the, the word that he inspired applies it to our hearts, gives us the ability to then carry it out. The word of God needs to be taught, needs to be preached, needs to be studied so that we can truly see what is pleasing to God. Because our lives are to exemplify godliness. And we need to see that we have a duty to one another. Accountability. Yes. We have a duty to one another to help further that in each other's life. The older influencing the younger. Older men, older women influencing younger men, younger women. And to recognize that the Lordship of Christ is extending over every area of our life. You are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your bodies. 
So, when it comes to your home, are you bitter? Are you bitter in your home? Are you bitter at your spouse? Are you bitter at your children? Are you just bitter? Do you try to keep certain areas of your life as only yours and not allowing Christ to be the Lord that he is anyway? And to, to live that part of your life too, to that which honors Christ? Are you doing that? Do you not see the need to do that? I honor Christ when I go to church. But when I go home, that's my area. When I go to work, that's my area. Dear friends, no. Your home is a gift to you by God. And therefore, it needs to be ordered accordingly. Your job is a gift of God. And therefore, as you work with your hands, you need to labor for the glory of God. And so in these instructions that he gives, you need to, to understand and to recognize if there are shortcomings in my life that I see that I'm not doing that. And, oh, Lord, help me. That's what you need to be praying. That's what I need to be praying. Oh, Lord, help me. Help me to do this in a way that you're honored in my life. Don't let me bring reproach upon your name so that others do have an occasion to condemn me for something that I've said or something that I've done that was unbecoming. Let me further the gospel by the way that I work and the way that I treat other people. Because your lordship extends to every part of my life. You are the Lord of my life. Help me. If you see areas in your life in which you struggle and areas in your life in which you have difficulty, then those are the very areas that you need to be praying for. Not to keep indulging that this is mine and then that's his over there, but to recognize, no, this is his too. Help me. Help me to carry out what you commanded me. That's the very thing that Augustine prayed. Lord, command what thou would and grant what thou dost command. Help me to carry this out. Because our time here is short. It's like a vapor. It's like a shadow. And we have so many different opportunities in order to honor Christ in our life. Yes, by sharing the gospel with others. But yes, by living your life at home in a way that honors Christ. By working in a way that honors Christ. By treating other people in your life in a way that honors Christ. You have so many opportunities in order to glorify Christ. But what are you doing with your time? How are you living right now? Because when you stand before him, what are you going to say? I wanted to sow my wild oats while I was young, but I was going to serve you later, but you took me too soon. That's not going to work. What did you do the time that he gave you? That's why we need to pray as Moses so teach us to number our days that we present to you a heart of wisdom. Let me start now. And let me demonstrate my love for you by trying to carry out what you command of me. Let us then try to glorify our Lord in every aspect of life. Because, dear friends, he has paid the ultimate price to redeem us and to purchase us, to live our lives in such a way that honors him and denying the 
the few small things of our own desires is not a big price to pay in light of what Christ has done. So let us pray and ask our Lord to help us. And we may present to him a heart of wisdom. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for this, this portion of your word. And thank you for our time together. Father, these are difficult things at times to carry out. Sometimes our, our patience does run thin. Sometimes our, our lips get the, uh, get the better of us and we say things that we shouldn't. Sometimes we're selfish and we want to keep certain areas of our life to ourselves. Oh Lord, we need you. We need you to help us where we fail and to show us, not just to let us see what we're doing wrong and to bring guilt, but thank you so much that you show us that to do what you command of us is indeed fulfilling and joyful for we get to express to you our love and our devotion and our appreciation for all the suffering that our, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ had endured on the cross to purchase us. Not so we can continue to indulge in those things, but that we can be delivered from them and live a life that is abundant, as you say. Lord, let us glorify you in every part of our life. And may Christ be magnified in us and may the Spirit of God keep moving in our hearts and changing us to carry out what you do command. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you so much that, that we didn't have to meet any standard for you to save us, but you saved us in spite of ourselves. And you are shaping us and molding us to be a vessel of honor. Thank you so much for the work that you've done, the work that you continue to do. And may our lives be a demonstration of our thankfulness to you. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, amen.